We remain standing for the reading of the gospel. Our custom at the end of every gospel reading is to say that this is the word of the Lord, and your customary response is to say, thanks be to God. If you don't feel like doing that today, that's understandable. Mark's gospel, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and that is why these powers are at work in him. But others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it's a prophet, like one of the old prophets. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe, as safe as you can keep somebody in prison. That's not in here. That's just my aside. (laughs) When he heard him, he was much perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will grant it. And he vowed to, <clears throat> he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the baptizer. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths. And his guest, he did not want to disappoint and break his word to her. And immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard and gave orders to bring his head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Your lack of enthusiasm for your part is noted. I know that some of you love my hospice stories and some of you wish I'd never tell another one. I have no hospice story for the beheading of John the Baptist, none that even comes close. I do wonder why Mark interrupts his story of Jesus with this grisly tale. Mark is always moving Jesus rapidly from place to place. He gets in a boat and goes somewhere else, gets back in a boat and comes back. He always uses the word immediately he does this, immediately he does that, and then suddenly he just stops with this bloody story. Why? When I first saw this in the lectionary as the passage for today, the gospel passage, I thought, who thought this was a good idea? 
There's no word from Jesus here. There are no teachings of Jesus in this passage. What's up? Just characters and maybe some choices. The one who seems to dominate the scene is the king. He's worried because he's heard about Jesus but doesn't know who he is. He thinks he might be John the Baptist, come back to life. And then the question would be, who really has the power? He's a man who feels guilty and confused and he's afraid. Because if John the Baptist has been resurrected, well, then he might want to talk to the person that had his head chopped off. Herod's one of three brothers. And the Romans divided this, this region with those three brothers. Herod got this part. His other brothers got other parts. And though he's a puppet king, he's still a king. He still has power and he has wealth. Wealthy and powerful, but without a clue who Jesus is. He married his sister-in-law, not for love, but for power, for the economics of it all, for the expanding of his influence. And John the Baptist told him he was wrong. And he was afraid of John. You talk back to a bully, it makes him stop and pause and wonder if they can really get away with bullying this one. John introduced some doubt to Herod. But Herod has him arrested, supposedly to protect him. And he throws a birthday bash for himself. And another character comes into this drama. Salome is identified in other scriptures. Here it's just simply identified as Herod's stepdaughter. Historically, we make her out as a seductress, manipulating. When I was growing up in a Southern Baptist church, the folks who taught our youth group were all lay folks, and they told us that Baptists didn't dance. Several of us hands shot up. Why? Troubling questions from teenagers. And they cited this passage because Salome danced before the king and got John the Baptist's head cut off. That's why we don't dance. (laughs) I've never danced well enough to get anybody's head cut off. But there's something else. A couple of chapters before this, the ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus and begs him to come and lay his hands on his little girl, 12 years old. And the same term used there for that little girl is used here of this girl. This is not some seductress, this is a child. And this this tawdry scene just takes this nauseating turn. She dances. 
And Herod offers her reward. Perhaps his birthday wine is speaking, you may have whatever you wish, even half of my kingdom. And she doesn't know what to ask for. A couple of weeks ago, Mary Helen sent me on an errand to Walmart, which is kind of torturous for me to go shopping anywhere, but I went. And while waiting for a clerk, I was talking to a man, and the subject of the lottery came up. Apparently, there was some big pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And without any prompting, he started naming off all that he was going to do with the lottery. A niece through college, a nephew paying off his debt, take care of his mother's mortgage. This would do for his son, and then a big pot for himself. It was like an accountant going down a ledger. I thought, you know what you're going to do with it, but you ain't got it. Here, she has no idea what to ask for, like any 12-year-old. So she runs to the kitchen to her mother to ask. And there's the next character in this drama. Herod's wife used to be his sister-in-law. She's heard about John, heard him speak to power, heard his denunciation of their marriage as being wrong, and she hates John for it. And she sends her daughter back to the king with a request, the vile request, asking for John's head on a platter. And the child is corrupted at every turn. She is a woman with wealth who lives in a male-dominated, corrupt system. And she's learned manipulation to get what she needs, to get security, to get some control of her own circumstances. And John's truth-telling threatens that. About 10 years ago, I served as the interim pastor at a church in southern Indiana, rural area, really small town. The pastor search committee asked me to meet with them after church one Sunday because they were having some difficulty finding a candidate. And in the meeting, they explained that they talked to several male candidates and all of them had turned them down. But I knew they were an American Baptist church. I knew American Baptist ordained women. So I said, have you considered a woman? And two people on that committee got very angry with me. They were both white, they were both wealthy, and they were both women. And I thought about how in a rural southern Indiana culture that has denied them opportunity all their lives to be equal and to have possibilities they may dream of to use their talents, they found a way to be wealthy and secure. And they develop a theology to go with it, to justify it. And they weren't about to give any young woman an opportunity to upset their apple cart. So off with his head. Another person enters a very small role, but maybe a big role to John the baptizer, Herod sends a soldier to cut John's head off. Very little is said about this soldier. He obeyed, brought the head on a platter. My mind just won't stop on those details. It's just too grisly. 
But I wonder about that soldier. I wonder what this did to him. You cannot take the life of another human being without destroying your own soul. How many atrocities in history have been carried out by people who said, I was just following orders, just doing my job, don't blame me. Another person destroyed in this corruption. And I think about people carrying out orders at our borders to take children from their parents. And I wonder what it does to them. And what's so sad in this whole narrative is there's no one with the clarity of conscience and the courage of soul to say no. There's another character, he's just off stage, only makes a grisly appearance, and it's John, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. I have to tell you, in my Bible study class, he's not our favorite character. We think he's kind of a wild man in the gospel. But we also know he lived his life with clarity and with purpose with a strong identity. He spoke truth to power. He called for repentance. He saw himself as one who was preparing the way for what God's going to do in this Jesus. And his message was to get life in order, get oneself in order, and get the powerful in order. John thought of himself as one sent from God. Now, what are we to make of all this? The readers of Mark's gospel were in dire straits, the first ones who'd read this. Historically, Jerusalem was about to be destroyed, in which case they'd have tremendous anxiety and fear, or it may have already been destroyed, in which case there'd be grief and despair. It's just hard for me to imagine here in Louisville being surrounded by armies that want to destroy us, even harder for me to imagine this place reduced to ashes and what that would do to my heart and soul. But that's where they were. And this is what Mark wrote. But it's not all that Mark wrote. We do ourselves a disservice by just looking at little snippets of Scripture. They got a larger story, because just prior to this passage, there is this, this stark contrast that's be, it's created. Jesus commissions the 12. They're to go out and they're to heal and to take very little. Herod sends a soldier from a lavish party to kill. Unbelievable contrast. He tells them to depend on, Jesus tells them to depend on the hospitality to others and to travel light. They're not to live out of greed. Herod lives in the palace, corrupting a child. After this, 5,000 people will be fed. In the palace, it's just the VIPs at a lavish banquet. 
It's like, do you see? Do you see what Jesus calls us to? To healing and compassion? And do you see what the culture is like? Nurturing violence and the corruption of children? He's saying in the worst of times, there is a call to clarity. He's asking them the question that troubled Herod. Who is this Jesus? See, they're, they're folks after the resurrection. They're reading this gospel after the resurrection. And if they're followers of Jesus, they know that. And the question is, who has the power? Mark presents an array of characters, victim, victimizers, and one of clear, concise purpose. And he asks them, who are you? At this point, this desperate point, this dangerous time in history, who are you? Choose courageously, he's saying. Friday morning, I went to to get a haircut. And if you have haircut jokes for me, I'll be at the back door in a moment. (laughs) And the woman waiting on me, uh, I said, what are you doing today? And I said, preparing. I thought, well, don't be cryptic, Jim. Tell her what you're doing. And I, I said, I'm preparing for a service tonight at my church. We do a Friday night church, and I'm filling in until we get a pastor. And we do it for folks in 12-step programs. And she said, what church is that? I said, Highland Baptist. And she said, I've been there. And the best choice I ever made in my life was to stop drinking. And she goes on to tell me about her children and her grandchildren and her love of her work. Uh, mine made it a lot easier, I think. And this, this loving grandmother's there in this public place telling me all of this. And it comes down that she made a choice. And it brought clarity to her life. Mark is saying, transcend your circumstances. Don't let these dangerous times define you. So often we so easily say, well, we're people of our time. No, we are people in our time, and we decide how we respond, and we choose what we will do. In spite of risk, in spite of danger, before and after this grisly episode, there is this work of love. And Mark is saying, choose, choose to continue to do the work of love, even if it's at great risk. Amen. Perhaps the word of the Lord. We sing a hymn now, a time to think about words spoken, about prayers given, about hymns sung, about our place in this place. And if you'd like to become part of Highland, this is a good time to do that. We stand together to sing, please. <laughs>